I've heard this at more than one nuclear power conference, uh, that uh, the industry is desperate to show a success because they, they're afraid that if they miss uh, this window of, over the next few years of trying to demonstrate that they can play an effective role in, in mitigating climate change, that they're going to become irrelevant. So it's not really about whether we need nuclear power or not. It's about whether the industry can show it can be useful. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be interviewing an expert uh, from the Union of Concerned Scientists who is... Uh, seen as anti-nuclear, so someone who's against nuclear power, uh, which is one of the strongest things that I feel I advocate for. The need for nuclear power as a response to climate change is obvious and very important to society. One of my core personal goals is to address the problems of the public perception of nuclear power and to uh, address misconceptions. And so arguing against someone who is anti-nuclear, as the um, Union of Concerned Scientists seems to be, is a, a bit of a challenge. And it's going to be the first time I've talked to someone who's on the other side of the fence in my podcast. So I'm a little bit nervous, uh, but I want to try to model some of the behaviors that I've talked about in, in discussing uh, politely with people who you oppose. Um, we start out by looking for common ground and then working forward to find out where the real issues lie. Because let's face it, we're all people and we all want to make the world better. Dr. Edwin Lyman is the Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists in Washington, D.C. He earned a doctorate in physics from Cornell University in 1992. From 1992 to 1995, he was a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Center for Energy and Environmental Studies, now the Science and Global Security Program. From 95 to 2003, he worked for the Nuclear Control Institute. His research focuses on nuclear power safety and security. He is a co-author with David Lockbaum and Susan Q. Stranahan of the book Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. The New Press, 2014. He is the recipient of the 2018 Leo Zillard Lectureship Award from the American Physical Society. Dr. Lyman, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks for having me. Could you tell me a little bit about your history and how you came to be in charge of nuclear safety with the, the UCS? Sure. So I'm a, a physicist by training. I uh, studied uh, theoretical particle physics at Cornell in the late 1980s at Cornell. And that was a very interesting time uh, in the physics community in the U.S. So in the 1980s, uh, President Reagan introduced the Star Wars program, which uh, was a, a anti-ballistic missile uh, defense program that would use space lasers. And so there was an active attempt by the administration to enroll physicists in the program with the promise of a lot of research money for laser physics and other related fields. When I left uh, graduate school, I transitioned into an area which is really more public interest science. I pursued um, uh, studies of nuclear security related to the disposal of 
fissile materials from dismantled warheads, primarily plutonium, and became uh, more interested in nuclear safety, which is also an interest of mine, having uh, grown up in New York City, uh, which is um, 25 miles from the Indian Point nuclear power plant, which was uh, on the mind of uh, a lot of people back in the late um, 70s and 80s when I was a teenager. So these various issues uh, came together, and I uh, pursued a career of trying to apply technical knowledge to public policy debates around nuclear um, power security and safety. Just to get a, a bit more background, um, obviously, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists uh, believes that climate change is a crisis um, and urgent action is needed to decarbonize the global energy system, correct? That's correct. So amongst the nuclear, uh, the pro-nuclear power community, UCS is commonly seen as an anti-nuclear energy lobby group. What's the history of UCS and its position on nuclear energy? Yes, that's actually a, a misperception. So UCS, from its inception um, more than 50 years ago, has promoted nuclear power safety, uh, but it has never taken a position pro or uh, anti-nuclear power. In fact, it's not a very productive place for an organization that's committed to um, scientific uh, reasoning and its application to public policy uh, to take a, a kind of partisan or doctrinaire position. We keep an open mind. But that said, uh, we don't like uh, the introduction of, of misleading and false information to the debate, often driven by commercial interests uh, selling a product, which um, we think um, can actually have an impact uh, or distort the flexibility, you know, using solutions to um, try to reduce uh, carbon emissions. So to get it the most ideal way uh, to rapidly reduce carbon, you need to be based in reality. And you can be aspirational and innovative, but you also have to uh, face the facts. And so we are very much in, in favor of the facts. And the facts do say that nuclear power, although it's a low-carbon energy source, has a host of issues, safety, uh, security, the uh, proliferation of weapons-usable nuclear materials, and the persistent and unsolved waste problem, uh, as well as the fact that the capital and operating cost of nuclear power plants in many places is um, prohibited. So you need to uh, face those facts honestly uh, if you're going to uh, have a, a, an honest debate about the role of nuclear power in mitigating climate change. And so that's what we're promoting. If there are solutions or technologies that actually make sense, uh, we would support them. Now, I've listened to your interview on, on Titans of Nuclear, uh, where you got into a a discussion or, or, or maybe more of a yelling match about linear no threshold hypothesis and the linear no threshold uh, posits that the dose response in humans or animals to ionizing radiation is effectively linear and as you well know uh, there is no solid scientific or statistical evidence below a certain threshold 
Uh, it's been adopted, the linear no-threshold theory has been adopted as a precautionary principle by many scientific organizations. However, the uh, UNSCAR has recently stated that multiplying infinitesimal doses by huge populations to estimate health impacts should not be done. What's your position on that? Well, I, I don't think uh, your statement that there's no scientific support uh, for uh, the linear no-threshold hypothesis is correct. Uh, the issue, as, as you know, is that in any uh, statistical or epidemiological study, you are going to require a certain uh, study size and a certain magnitude of effect to be able to have a, a demonstrate statistically significant effects. So the... Um, the common understanding of ionizing radiation exposure comes from, in part, from large epidemiological studies such as the Hiroshima and Nagasaki lifespan study, as well as other uh, populations of people who are exposed with known and controlled exposures, which helps to be able to quantify um, the dose response. But uh, as the, you do have to extrapolate. Um, below the, the lowest dose where um, you can demonstrate a statistically significant effect and there's an area of uncertainty. But there is a biological, plausible biological mechanism uh, to support the uh, a linear no threshold hypothesis. And so, yes, the precautionary principle in, in terms of regulation would suggest that for those low doses, um, given you can extrapolate, uh, you do have certain information by extrapolating from the higher dose range, and you can limit, you can test different hypotheses for, for those lower doses. But coupled that information with um, the plausible biological mechanisms, and it's quite a reasonable thing uh, to posit, and the vast majority of radiation protection organizations and and scientists uh, endorse the linear no-threshold hypothesis. In the case of UNSCEAR's statement, uh, they don't provide any justification for why um, the notion of using collective dose is not a, a reasonable way to try to understand the health burden uh, from ionizing radiation as a result of either routine or accidental exposures. They simply don't explain their justification. I think there is a lot of scientific uncertainty about where this is going. Um, recently, there's been a lot of work on hormesis as a, as a possible effect at lower doses as well, where cellular repair mechanisms uh, are ramped up in response to uh, low rates of damage. And you say that there are plausible mechanisms. I think there are people that would disagree. Um, and you say that you are working in facts as UCS in your public policy stance. And I think uh, assuming the linear no threshold theorem is not working in facts, the best scientific analysis, as you agree, are unable to measure any health effects of acute radiation exposures below, say, about 100 or maybe 50 millisieverts at the low end. Uh, and there's no evidence, as far as I'm aware, that populations living in enhanced natural radiation zones have elevated cancer rates. So I think maybe we'll have to agree to disagree on this point. 
Sure, but um, actually, are you familiar with the NCRP's most recent study uh, uh, looking at uh, a very large number of, of epidemiological studies uh, that all <clears throat> the consensus of the that's the National Council on Radiation Protection Measurements in I think it was a, two, a 2018 study looked at all the available data. Uh, they've heard the arguments for hormesis. They're aware of the very sparse literature, mostly in um, fringe journals. And as a you're an astrophysicist, so I, I expect that you understand the significance of of peer review and established journals as opposed to fringe journals. And they came to the conclusion that there's no reason not to support the linear no threshold hypothesis in these assumptions. And moreover, very interesting is that in um, studies, the potential health consequences of nuclear accidents, for instance, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission conducted a study called uh, SORCA uh, over the past decade, where they actually modeled uh, using software that I'm quite uh, familiar with uh, to estimate the potential cancer fatalities resulting from severe accidents in nuclear power plants. And they looked at a range of assumptions in those models, including different thresholds. So they posited um, a 100 millirem, which is a uh, one um, millisievert uh, threshold, and also a 50 millisievert threshold, which is the assumption that you mentioned as far as the support from uh, extrapolating from low doses. And the interesting thing is that even with those threshold assumptions, they only had a 10 or 20% effect on the overall cancer estimates of cancer fatalities because most of the people exposed actually exceeded those thresholds. So it doesn't even matter that much, uh, really, uh, if you assume these thresholds because, first of all, you need to know what the individual exposures are. And the other thing is... How do you apply the notion of a threshold? You can't tell me what the actual threshold is, what that means in terms of the effective dose, uh, which is um, it's a, an estimate, an approximation of the impact of ionizing radiation in different tissues that's then weighted to come up with one value. It's not a, a, a you know fundamentally a very biologically meaningful event. You have to understand what the impact is on different tissues and organ systems, what the, uh, the potential repair mechanisms that you talk about, their impact on a site-specific or organ-specific way, and how do you actually do those calculations? I don't know. Indeed, and uh, I think we can turn this into a, a detailed debate on the linear no-threshold theorem, but I'd, I'd like to go uh, beyond that a little bit. And just in, as a final response, I mean, we know that cells are currently uh, dealing with mutations all the time uh, from reactive free radicals in the blood, oxygen, pHs, smoke, alcohol, uh, 10,000 to a million DNA errors per cell per day is the kind of the background rate. Um, and the LNT hypothesis suggests that one or two additional errors per cell per day are significant, which I think is maybe the part where it becomes difficult to see a plausible mechanism for this to work because the sort of doubling dose for the background of, of mutations is on the order of one and a half sieverts. 
to double the natural rate of mutation in, in, a, in a human body or in a cell. And that's in, in, in sudden dose. If you look at this stretched out over a year, say, looking at safety limits of uh, a, a couple millisieverts, it's just, it pales, it, it's, it disappears into the negligible uh, background count. And to put it in perspective, which I think is something that we need to do. All I can say is that view is, is not, you should learn about what uh, you're not a radiobiologist, I assume, neither am I, so there's no real <laughs> point in carrying on this conversation. But the, the plausible biological mechanism is that a single ionizing radiation track can cause double-strand DNA damage or multiply damaged sites, which is a cancer initiator. So the level of background mutation is not particularly relevant. We're talking about the question of a, an environmental carcinogen affecting a living organism, and what is the impact of that effect? And, um, of course, there are background um, effects with regard to a whole range of different uh, carcinogens. The rate of these, these double-strand mutations are also similar to 1.4 sieverts. I, I spoke with uh, an actual radiobiologist last week, Dr. Jerry Thomas of the UN SCARE Reports, and she was basically saying the same thing. Well, all I can do is refer you to the NCRP's latest study, and if you want to read that, and then we can come back and discuss it. I'll definitely okay. read that. Okay. So let's move on. What events have in the past, now you talked about, you know, growing up in the 70s and, and, and being present for the, 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 radi uh, the Reagan um, Star Wars initiative and, and how that uh, was responded to by the physicists at the time. What events have shaped your impression of the dangers of nuclear energy? You, you said you were down the road from Indian Point in, in New York. What, what shaped your impressions of the dangers of nuclear energy? Well, certainly Chernobyl, um, of course, was eye-opening. And um, I was just starting graduate school at the time. That wasn't my uh, field of interest, but it clearly demonstrated how uh, a nuclear power system that's not appropriately designed, regulated, and operated can result in a catastrophe that affected uh, the lives of, of hundreds of thousands of people and led to long-term uh, contamination of the environment. So I think that does underscore the need for a, a significant attention to nuclear power plant design, to the way it's regulated, and to the way it's operated. Um, then, um, of course, the response to Chernobyl from the nuclear industry in the West was that can't happen here, uh, pointing to the differences between the Chernobyl RBMK design and Western design light water reactors. Uh, of course, there's plenty of evidence that the, there is uh, a likelihood that a light water reactor can undergo a severe core melt accident and contain a failure. Um, but uh, the industry was mm -hmm. banking on the differences between Soviet design regulation and the West. Uh, that uh, attitude was shattered when uh, Fukushima Daiichi happened in 2011, and we had um, three nuclear reactor core melt accidents and three hydrogen explosions and uh, a potential close call involving one of the spent fuel pools, which could have led to an even greater release of uh, highly radioactive cesium-137 into the environment if, by chance, 
uh, that hadn't been averted. So, so these only uh, cemented the need for, uh, if you're going to have nuclear power as a reasonable uh, option for mitigating climate change, you can't negotiate with the need to have uh, to avoid anything like a Chernobyl or Fukushima in the future, uh, because that is only going to be counterproductive for the prospects of the technology, as well as highly destructive uh, to public health and the environment. Certainly, um, the public response to these has been uh, overwhelming. I remember as a child, uh, also growing up in the shadow of nuclear war and being taught to fear the dangers of radiation from nuclear weapons testing, making the world forever radioactive and destroying the ecosystems. Um, but since then, you know, through reading the scientific literature and the NREF study, for example, showing that the evacuations of Fukushima and Chernobyl were horribly overdone and caused more damage than staying put would have done. I've learned that the amount of radiation released from radio, uh, from weapons testing is an infinitesimal fraction of the natural radiation in the environment. I'm wondering, I have this hypothesis, instilling fear of radiation. Is this one of the tactics that was consciously used by anti-weapons uh, groups to stop weapons testing back in the early days? Al, obviously you have a point of view. I, it's an extreme and a, and a marginal point of view. And um, the atmospheric nuclear weapons tests had an incredible environmental toll. The amount of, of iodine and strontium-90 uh, that was injected into the environment that ended up in, in uh, children's bones and teeth. Let, I mean, that led to an international outcry that eventually led to a, 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 a ban on atmospheric weapons tests. This, this is a place where we actually have to agree, Ed. Uh, I can say that being in the position of, of stopping nuclear weapons and mitigating nuclear weapons pr proliferation, I'm on your side there. And I find that being in the position of pushing fear of radiation to stop nuclear weapons certainly was not unjustifiable back in the 70s. However, we find ourselves, I feel, in the position of needing nuclear power now to decarbonize the energy sector. And I guess it's hard to walk back on 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 the the work that was done to stop weapons testing. And there's always a conflation here of energy and weapons that is in the public's eye that we need to be very careful of as scientists to not exacerbate. Are you afraid of nuclear weapons proliferation if the fear of small doses of radiation from Fukushima, for example, is undermined by the science? You have to apply the understanding of each particular situation, uh, the, the data. Uh, I don't. I reject the supposition or your hypothesis that. First of all, there's a clear delineation between nuclear weapons and civilian nuclear power, um, but there is a common aspect, and that is the potential for radioactive contamination if the if facilities are not operated safely and securely. And uh, your your line of reasoning, uh, I mean, it just doesn't uh, resonate with me. Um, and this idea that there's this unjust fear of radiation. Radiation is a well-established carcinogen, um, and it needs to be controlled like any other environmental carcinogen in, in the environment. And there's a, a, a long history and a body of evidence supporting uh, the current uh, need 
uh, to regulate radiation. Uh, there was plenty of information uh, that came out about environmental uh, dispersion and exposures of radiation in the environment from the weapons test that was useful. Uh, but I, I completely reject this, this absurd notion that somehow um, uh, this fear of radiation is unjustly or inappropriately uh, applied to a nuclear power. You have to accept the situation in its own terms and do a dispassionate analysis. I agree. Rational public policy is what I'm looking for. So looking at taking a step back and looking at um, the work that UCS has done on the global energy scene, uh, how do you think the global energy scene will look if, if you are successful in your role uh, as a nuclear safety representative for UCS? How do you see uh, the evolution of the response to the climate change crisis? What do you want to see in terms of the future distribution of energy sources? You know, I'm, I'm not the expert on, on extrapolating or, or developing uh, decarbonized energy policies that I'd refer you to my, my colleagues. But from my point of view, I, I want to see a decarbonized system where there is a, uh, a clear understanding of the various risks and benefits and utility of the different components of that energy policy. And that that's based on, um, it's technically based, but it's also informed by a societal component and a well-informed uh, uh, society is, you know, um, is all to the good in helping to promote that vision. But the fact is that the debate is so corrupted by various interests, not only, of course, fossil fuels, which are fighting, uh, fighting to prevent change, uh, but also all the various technologies uh, that are exaggerating their capabilities to try to get market share, investor interest, and, and government subsidy and public support. And um, unfortunately, in that arena, nuclear power feels like it's losing out uh, to renewable energy. And I've heard this at more than one nuclear power conference, uh, that uh, the industry is desperate to show a success because they, they're afraid that if they miss uh, this window of over the next few years of trying to demonstrate that they can play an effective role in, in mitigating climate change, that they're going to become irrelevant. So it's not really about whether we need nuclear power or not. It's about whether the industry can show uh, that it it can be useful uh, before it becomes irrelevant. And that's not um, that's a bit of a different uh, balance. Now, nuclear power is a low carbon energy source. Uh, you need to value that benefit, uh, but it also needs to compete against other technologies that do not have the burden of um, uh, all its liabilities. And when we're talking about nuclear weapons, by the way, of course, there is a link, and that's through the fuel cycle and the fact that the materials needed uh, to produce commercial or civil nuclear power uh, uh, and the facilities needed to produce their fuels can be misused to produce material for nuclear weapons. And so the only way, so you can't, if you're worried about nuclear weapons proliferation, you also have to worry about the effectiveness of the international institutions 
uh, that guard against it, including the International Atomic Energy Agency and the International Safeguards Regime. So you also have to um, ensure that if there's going to be an expansion of nuclear power, that the ability of the IEA to safeguard that expansion will be effective. So um, that, that's another issue that you need to consider. Indeed, the um, a lot of the countries that have uh, you know built these light water reactors, like the U.S. and the U.K., have come to nuclear power through a weapons program. They wanted to develop nuclear weapons first. They had the capability of, en- of enhan- enriching uranium, so they said, hey, let's use this for nuclear power as well. So they came to this conclusion through the path from weapons. Uh, Canada, of course, came at it from the other direction. Our can-do programs do not require um, enhancement or enrichment of uranium. We operate on natural uranium uh, with no subsequent risk of proliferation. And the can-do um, has, a, gr- has a, a great safety record in terms of producing power uh, reliably. Now, I've I've read UCS articles that suggest nuclear plants in financial difficulty need more support to prevent further climate change. Why are these plants at risk? Yeah, can I just address the CANDU briefly since you brought it up? Um, um, CANDUs do pose a, a greater risk of uh, nuclear proliferation because they're online refueled reactors and have relatively low burn-up when they're discharged. So it is actually a greater challenge for the IAEA to apply effective safeguards in an online fueled reactor than in a reactor where the mm-hmm. reactor vessel is uh, refueled only uh, periodically and sealed in between refueling. So there, there are issues with the can-do. And in addition, it has a positive uh, moderator uh, void coefficient, which uh, would not be licensable in the United States, for example, and, uh, uh, and does lead to the potential for a super prompt critical power increase. So there are, there are issues with the can-do design, although I do agree that the ability to use natural uranium is, is an advantage. Uh, now, on, on, in terms of the U.S., uh, the UCS report, on, which is called the nuclear dilemma, uh, so here in the United States, we have a population of aging nuclear power plants, and um, many of them are no longer economical to run, um, partly because, um, or primarily those reactors in deregulated markets where they actually have to compete on a cost basis with not only uh, fossil fuels, but also wind and solar, which uh, at some uh, times of the year and sometimes of the day are cheaper than nuclear power, just running off the operating costs. So as a result, a number of nuclear plants in the U.S. have uh, shut down um, and more are planning to shut down because they are no longer economical. This does pose a problem because if individual states uh, and the U.S. as a whole needs to meet carbon reduction targets, obviously if you close a nuclear plant and you replace it with a gas plant, uh, you're going to be working against reducing Carbon. So the report was meant to address that issue, and also uh, another critical factor is that uh, the plants should be transparent about their finances. If they're asking for subsidies because they claim the plan is uneconomic, they should be able to demonstrate that. And we have a situation in the U.S. and the state of Ohio, which is ostensibly to promote clean energy and prevent the premature premature shutdown of 
uh, to nuclear power stations in Ohio was actually the result of bribery uh, on the part of the utility. Uh, uh, so they were using the excuse of uh, clean energy legislation to essentially get uh, a financial windfall for their nuclear power plants. And the lack of transparency mm -hmm. uh, has led to uh, criminal indictments, and it's a big mess. So uh, you can't let these types of policies become slush funds. Uh, you need to have uh, the fundamental financial information out in the open uh, for the public to inspect. I think one of the reasons that well, several of the there's several issues with how these things are being run in the U.S. in terms of the deregulation, which is, is I think, not a good idea in general. Um, and having um, fluctuating power sources like renewables being valued the same as a stable grid uh, leads to rolling blackouts like we've seen in Germany and California. And issues of deregulation lead to situations like we saw in Texas recently. I think the financial system of, needs to value a stable grid uh, that doesn't have blackouts. And I think, you know, we know renewables are heavily subsidized both by government uh, green policies and also by offshoring to China where labor standards are lax and environmental standards are lax. Um, obviously, nuclear plants with their domestic high quality jobs and their adherence to um, tighter environmental standards uh, for being domestic uh, should avail themselves or should be availed of, of similar public subsidies in terms of the work that they do in decarbonizing the economy. Well, um, you raise a, a lot of issues there in one breath. So um, there's a question of what, well, first of all, Nuclear power plants or other plants that provide base load capacity are already valued in, in uh, some of the energy markets. Um, uh, but you can only take that so far. Uh, and nuclear power plants actually are extremely vulnerable to grid instability or failure because nuclear power plants can operate without access to uh, reliable, stable off-site power. If they lose off-site power, they have to shut down and go on on backup diesels. So they're not actually uh, as dependable as, as some people claim. So in some case, there is, you have to understand the limitations of the various alternatives, but there's also uh, the public policy aspect, and this should be a, a conversation uh, that the wider public has about what do they want to see in terms of future energy policy. And um, and so we don't uh, embrace that. If, if there are fundamental limitations to uh, the technologies that we have and, and can reasonably extrapolate to over the next few decades that mean nuclear power needs to play a role, uh, then uh, so be it. But again, it has to be safe. It has to be secure. Uh, and, um, and you have to address the longstanding issues which the industry has kicked uh, down the road for too long without, without dealing with them appropriately. Ignoring appeal to nature fallacies where, you know, 100% renewable is possible, we really do know that do no harm is not possible. The sort of orders of magnitude in terms of mining and infrastructure requirements for low density power sources such as solar and wind put huge impacts on terms of environmental mining requirements and land use requirements and recycling requirements that aren't being met. The 
looking at all of these things and weighing, I think putting nuclear up to a bright light and holding up this uh, assessment as a, a balanced assessment is has been an error that the public has been exposed to for some time now, and it's been very successful in bringing probably more damaging technologies to bear on the issue of public energy policy. Fukushima produced, for example, 4.7 gigawatts for 42 years at high availability on the order of you know 30 or 40 terawatt hours per year over its lifetime. This displaced coal, effectively saving 1,000 to 5,000 lives per year over that period. And I think we have to look at these things in relation to what they're doing to displacing fossil fuels. This is the goal of both of us, of all of scientific people that accept the climate change argument. We need to displace fossil fuels. And for every clean energy source that's built, we're displacing deaths due to pollution. Um, we know that deaths attributed to pollution are also exacerbated by radiophobia and the overreaction to the Fukushima and Chernobyl uh, uh, events. Philip Thomas invented the J-value, which looked at the rational comparison of impacts from living in, say, the Fukushima exclusion zone or the Chernobyl exclusion zone and compares it to the loss of life and the years lost and does the actuarial analysis. And he basically says that the science shows us that the evacuations were overdone because of radiophobia. I'm not disputing that there, there are uh, significant health, aspect, uh, health effects associated with uh, particulate matter, but you need to look at the sources. You need to look, if you're going to do an adequate comparison, you need to look at all the variables that you can control in doing those comparisons. It's absurd to just throw out numbers about um, radiation exposure versus fossil fuels, that understanding, the range of mitigation options in each case, and, and do a rational comparison. Uh, and coming up with, with a single number to characterize it is, is, um, is reductive and, and uh, baking in so much uncertainty that I think it's essentially a meaningless framework. Oversimplification of these issues is not helpful. How many deaths did uh, UCS suggest would happen using their linear no-threshold uh, hypothesis? The collective dose that Unskier estimated for the people of Japan from Fukushima, is that what you were talking about? Yes. Right, so that would be on the order of a few thousand cancer deaths. Okay. And using the same linear no-threshold models for air pollution uh, and the amount of nuclear taken offline due to radiophobia following this in Germany and Japan resulted in 28,000 extra cancer death or extra cardiopulmonary deaths from pollution in fossil fuel, coal, burning, that sort of thing. Don't we need to, as scientists, make these balances and look at the the impact of our of our policies, and be careful not to make the situation worse. It's first of all, it's a very hard thing to try to come up with a uniform measure that captures all the various detriments of different energy technologies. Again, we're talking about energy policies where you develop a strategy uh, for deciding what. Uh, what are the goods, uh, you know, what is the public good that you're trying to get out of the system uh, in, a, in a conversation with the public and, um, and implement uh, policies accordingly? 
and but um, and you need to have a more sophisticated view of the variety of different detriments with different energy sources. And again, comparing, uh, first of all, shutting down a nuclear power plant is not necessarily going to result in um, uh, the construction of a gas plant. And if it does, well, what are the alternatives for mitigating? Where again, we're getting down to a discussion of cost. It's going to, it takes money to make nuclear power plants safer. It takes money to mitigate uh, particulate matter from fossil fuel plants. Where are you going to apply those resources? Again, but um, just these reductive uh, comparisons of cancer deaths without understanding all the complexity going into that is not um, a, a particularly meaningful way to understand the problem. Again, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one. I think we're reaching the end of our time slot, though, Ed. I appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us here on The Rational View. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So that was Dr. Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists. I think, in retrospect, there were a lot of points within that interview where I could have argued more strenuously uh, against Ed's uh, claims. But the point I wanted to make in this interview was that we need to look at the big picture and the difference between radiation dose health effects and the air pollution from fossil fuel burning, despite what Ed says, are significant. And this is a simple reduction that we can make. We can't even measure the impact of the, the low-level radiation from Fukushima on health. But the epidemiology from air pollution levels in major cities is a clear and strong statistical signal that is not disputed. And sure, the science on linear no-threshold versus hormesis is not settled. Uh, it would be speculation to pick one or the other at this point. The, the science just isn't good enough because it's a relatively small effect. And it's horribly difficult to tease out from the background of normal cancer risks like breathing oxygen or going out in the sunlight or drinking alcohol or smoking that all the people in the world do. And the cancer risk delta that Ed and UCS are trying to protect us from, if they are right about the linear no-threshold no theorem, in the case of the Fukushima Daiichi area, would be similar to what you would get from drinking about a glass of wine a week in the most contaminated areas, maybe a half a percent uh, lifetime increase in risk of cancer. And we know that the air pollution in Tokyo from fossil fuel burning increases your risk of premature death by over 10%. So it's, you know, more than an order of magnitude difference. It's, it's clear. And this doesn't account for the risk of climate change from fossil fuels, or the risk of severe cardiopulmonary disease or asthma from the pollution. Now, Ed is a smart guy, and safety first is an honorable calling. But we've seen the worst that happens when nuclear power goes awry, and it's not as bad as the status quo with fossil fuels. And we all need to wake up to this truth. We are in a, a climate crisis, and if you're a person who is aware of the risk posed by climate change, then you have a responsibility to weigh the risks of what you say to the public and how you say it. Because the ecosystem's at risk and scientists need to step up now and fix the damage that's been caused by the slowdown in nuclear power 
and the ongoing dominance of fossil fuels. We need to stop the body count from rising. Thank you for listening to The Rational View. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.